Good morning, New Life. You guys can grab a seat. It's good to see you all this morning. Uh, good to see uh, all of our visitors. It's great to see if you're listening, if you're joining us uh, via live stream, a welcome to you as well. If we haven't had the chance to meet in person yet, my name is Chris. I'm one of your pastors um, here at New Life. And uh, really good to be back with you uh, after taking the week off last week. I appreciate uh, Steve so much for uh, preaching for me. Uh, Cheryl and I were able to get away for a few days to celebrate uh, our 15th wedding anniversary. And so, yeah, yeah, 15 years just, just, means, just means I'm getting old, you know. But uh, I won't tell you that it was 85 degrees and sunny every day in Florida last week. So I want to make you jealous. But hey, we're, spring is right around the corner. We're, what, four days away from the official launch of spring, and so really looking forward to some warm, kind of 60, 70 degree days, uh, sunny days here in the mountains coming up soon, I'm sure. But it's great to be back with you this morning. Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab that and open it up or turn it on on your device and head to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7, that's going to be our home base that we're going to work from uh, together this morning as we continue in our David series. And as you find your place there, just a couple of quick reminders. Uh, two weeks from today, March 31st, uh, we're having a baptism Sunday, right? So we're going to have uh, the pool of water here. And so if that's something that you've been thinking about, like, man, I, I know I should be baptized. Maybe I'm already a follower of Jesus, but that's just like one thing that I've never actually done. Or maybe you're like, man, I just want to follow Jesus. I'm ready to like go all in with my life with him. And that's a great way to kind of symbolize that new start, that new journey with Christ. Man, so if that's something that's on your heart, maybe the Holy Spirit has been working on you or maybe he's working on you right now in this moment as I talk about it, uh, just drop us an email at info at nlcca.org. If you just drop us an email there, again, info at nlcca.org. Uh, we'll contact you this week and get you the info that you need about being baptized in two weeks. Also, uh, you know what else is coming up really soon, like a month from now? Easter. I mean, it's literally right around the corner, just a shade over a month now. It's hard to believe. And I, I feel like I say this uh, every year as we step into Easter season, uh, and that's because I do say it every year. But uh, this is, all the studies bear this out, right? There are two times a year where you can invite your friends, neighbors, coworkers, classmates, whatever who don't normally attend church, perhaps they don't even believe in God, they are willing to come on Easter Sunday a ton of times if somebody that they know and trust will actually invite them. And so as your pastor, what I'm asking you to do, you've got over a month to figure out who you're gonna invite. What I'm asking you to do is think of a few people that you're gonna invite to come with you to Easter service, okay? Now, you may have to invite four or five people to get one yes, but I promise you, if you invite enough people, there are people actually looking for somewhere to celebrate on Easter Sunday. And so, look, the, the reason that we try to pack this place out on Easter Sunday is not so that we can have some sort of, like, inflated numbers and kind of pat ourselves on the back. The reason that we try to pack this place out on Easter Sunday is because we want to expose as many people as possible to the glorious good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, all right? And so please, what you can do for us is just think about somebody that you can invite, somebody that you can bring with you. Again, you got four or five weeks to kind of figure that out. But be, be thinking about that, who you bringing on Easter. And then coming up in a week and a half, 
So not this coming Wednesday, but the following Wednesday, like 10 days from now, that's the 27th at 6.30 p.m., we're going to have our second ever worship night. And if you were here for the first one, you know that it was just, we had a, a phenomenal time just worshiping the Lord. And if you're, if you're thinking, well, I don't, I'm not a, like a singer, dude. I don't like singing. There are other elements that we do, okay? So it's not, it's not all singing. So come, be a part of that. Put that on your calendar. Uh, it's going to be a, a good time. Now, to our text this morning, you may not know this, but 2 Samuel chapter 7 is arguably one of the most important passages in all of the Old Testament. Now, that's a, that's a mouthful because the Old Testament is chock full of incredible truths. And the reality is, the older I get, the more I fall in love with kind of just the unfiltered rawness and beauty of the Old Testament. I just love it. But 2 Samuel chapter 7 stands above the crowd for a couple of reasons, uh, as we'll see together. This passage is known as the Davidic Covenant. For you Bible nerds out there, you'll appreciate that. There are a number of covenants in the Bible that God makes with his people. And all the covenants, they, they sort of stack on top of each other. So they, they sort of build on one another. And of course, all the covenants climax with the new covenant or the messianic covenant with the arrival of Jesus on the scene almost 2,000 years ago. So 2 Samuel chapter 7 is a messianic prophecy, and it's really exciting. I'm, I'm pumped up about it. I hope you're excited about it. Um, it's going to be amazing as we dig in and see what God has for us here. And I believe that God has something for everyone here. He has something that he wants to communicate to you, a truth that he wants to embed in your heart for your good this morning. Listen, whether you're here as a Christian, maybe you've been following Jesus for like five years, 10 years, 20 years, uh, something really long like that, or maybe you're here and you're just kind of like exploring the faith. Maybe you're even a skeptic. You're like, man, I, I don't even know about all this God stuff, all this Jesus stuff. I'm just not sure about all that. Even if that's where you're at right now in your journey in life, I believe that God has something for you today through his word. And so let's pause just for a moment and ask God to help us before we dive in. Father, thank you uh, for these ancient words that were and are inspired by your Holy Spirit. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes now to help us see. Father, open our ears, help us hear. Open our hearts, help us receive what you have to say to each and every one of us this morning. God, help us just as we all walk in here with different burdens. Help us to set aside, Father, anything that might be tugging right now on our mind's attention or our heart's affection. God, give us a clear mind. Give us a clear heart for the next 30, 35 minutes or so because we need to hear from you. And it's in Jesus' good name that we ask. Amen. All right, hope you're there by now, 2 Samuel chapter 7, and we're going to start in verse 1, and we'll just kind of go through, we'll read a couple of verses, talk, read a few more verses, talk, that's just kind of the way that we do it. All right, First Samuel, or sorry, 2 Samuel 7 verse 1. Now, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Okay, so let's, let's take a moment just to set the scene, set the stage here. David is now firmly entrenched as the king of Israel, right? 
And God has given him this really amazing season of rest after many years of battles and wars and living on the run as Saul tried to kill him. And so life is good right now for David. And David is hanging out with his good buddy Nathan, who was a prophet in Israel at the time. We learn in 1 Chronicles, Nathan is actually one of David's closest advisors. They were so close, in fact, that David eventually would name one of his sons after Nathan. And so these guys are really close, really tight friends. They're tight-knit. And so we can sort of picture them now in David's brand-new house made of cedar wood. And so this is a nice, like, posh place that David has here, right? And so we can, we can picture David and Nathan perhaps sitting, uh, you know, on the rock patio out back, you know, grilling out the big screen TV over the outdoor fireplace. They got the big game on, Zion's dunking on UNC at the last minute, you know. Is that too soon? Too soon? Still a little raw? All right, so, sorry about that. Duke fans love that. So the big game's on, man. They got the, they're out there on the patio. The big game's on, man. Maybe their wife's. Maybe their kids are out by the, the pool, kind of splashing around, re- relaxing. Man, the sun is out, the sky is blue, the birds are singing, life is grand, right? And so we got a picture of the king and the pastor, and they're out there just soaking it all up. Life is grand for them. And so we can kind of picture David, he's out there with his buddy, and he's kind of flipping the filet mignon on the green egg grill, and he kind of looks out over Jerusalem, right? And he sees the tent that houses the Ark of the Covenant. Now remember, we talked about the Ark of the Covenant a couple of weeks ago. So if you missed that, you can go back and catch up on that. But David looks out over Jerusalem, sees the Ark of the Covenant in this just ratty little tent, essentially. And David goes, you know what, Nathan? It's not right, man. It's not right that I'm living in this posh palace, but the Ark of God is in a simple tent. Like, that ain't right, Nate. That's not, that's not right. I should build a house for God. I should build this magnificent temple or church for God to kind of display his greatness to the world. What do you think about that, Nate? What do, you, what do you think about that? And Nathan, being a true pastor at heart, says what all pastors say when wealthy people offer to pay for stuff at church. Nathan goes, yes, do it. <laughs> Show me the money, Dave. Let's do this. Let's build this thing up. Which, by the way, if you're here this morning and you're wealthy and you'd like to finance some things here at New Life, please see me after the service. I'd like to talk to you. Well, it seems like a good idea, right? David thinks it's a good idea. Nathan thinks it's a good idea. But God has other plans. Let's pick up in verse 4. But the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with people, all the people of Israel, I, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So in other words, God's like, David, I love your heart here, man. But when, when did I ever ask for a home? So David essentially tells Nathan to go back to his buddy and say, uh, David, no. God says, you're not going to build him a house. Now, why, why on earth would God tell David no to such a noble idea? 
I mean, basically, all David wants to do is build this huge church so people can come and worship God and be awed by his greatness. What's wrong with that idea? And God says no to that. What's going on here? Well, here's, here's what's happening. Think God, God is teaching David an incredibly important principle here, and it's this. And this is kind of the overarching, like, big idea of the, te- of the text this morning. So if you're a note taker, write this down. Here's the big idea. In God's kingdom, it's not about what we do for God. It's about what God has done for us. Now, you see there's this misconception that David seemed to have, and I see this misconception in church from well-meaning people all the time, and the misconception that I hear and I see often goes like this. Well, listen, because God has done so much for me in Jesus, I just need to spend the rest of my life paying God back. And that sounds noble enough, doesn't it? The only problem is it's, it's not biblical, <laughs> Like, like God didn't save us, for those of us in the room who are followers of Jesus this morning, he didn't save us so that we would be duty-bound to pay God back. You see, in, in, in a real sense, repayment of a gift negates the grace of that gift, doesn't it? It'd be sort of like, I can illustrate it this way. Suppose one of my three kids, their, one of their birthdays was coming up. And they really had something special that they wanted. And suppose, man, I saved for a long time and I sacrificed so I could make it happen for them. And suppose that that day came, their birthday came, and they got their big present. And they opened it up and they were just just shocked, just overwhelmed with thankfulness. And suppose that their response to me was, well, you know, Dad, I, I bet that this amazing gift probably cost you like $500, And so, Dad, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go upstairs, and I'm going to make a chore chart, and I'm going to to do extra chores around the house until I work off that $500. No! Like, that is not the point of my gift. Like, I don't want my kids to pay me back. That negates the whole point of the gift. All I want for them to do is to enjoy the gift in the context of, of a loving relationship with their daddy. But listen, for so many of us, we miss the boat on this, right? And we want to somehow like pay God back for his gift of salvation. We want to pay him back for the forgiveness that we've received, for the redemption that we've received through Jesus, as if we could ever come close to paying God back. Like we could spend every second of every day of our entire lives, of a thousand lifetimes, just serving in every ministry in church, giving him every penny that we ever make, taking like mission trips every other week, and we would, listen, we would never even come close to paying God back, and we would miss the whole point of the gift in the process. Verse eight, now therefore, Thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. 
and violent man shall afflict them no more as formerly. Verse 11, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you, David, a house. Now, do you see all of the I statements there? God is saying, David, I'm the one who took you out of the pastures. I'm the one who made you a king, sheep boy. Don't forget that. I rescued you from all of your enemies. You know all those battles you've been winning? Guess what? Yeah, that was me too. And I'm going to be the one that makes your name great. And I'm going to give you rest. And I'm going to make a house for you, a dynasty for you. I'm the one that's doing all of that. In other words, David, this, is, this whole thing is not about you at all. All that you are, all that you've accomplished, all that you have, David, is from me. So this whole thing is not about you giving to me. It's about me giving to you. You're not going to build me a house. David, I'm going to build you a house. So, friend, let me just encourage you this morning. Uh, if you have this thought in your head, God is not on his throne in heaven this morning looking down at you and thinking, man, if Johnny sitting at New Life Church right now, man, if he would just start tithing, then maybe I could change the world. He's not looking down at you right now and thinking, man, if Susie Johnson would just take a mission trip, then perhaps I could actually do something in the world. Listen, God doesn't need us. God didn't need David. He chose to use David, and he chooses to use you and me precisely because he's a good God and he loves his children. And he's reminding David, hey, listen, David, you may be the king of Israel, but I'm the king of the universe. Don't forget that. I'm the savior. I'm the rescuer. I'm the provider. The weight of the world, David, is on my shoulders, not yours. Now, some of you need to hear that this morning. That's freedom, that it's not on us, that it's not about us. Like, I need to be reminded of this truth often, right? Because if I'm being gut level honest with you this morning, there are times in my life where I can get so wrapped up in just kind of like this self-imposed pressure and stress of like helping lead a church, like as if God needs me to accomplish anything, right? And, and God is so good and so patient and so gracious with me, and he consistently reminds me in his word through passages like this in 2 Samuel 7 and through faithful brothers and sisters in my life that say to me, hey, Chris, remember, it's not about you. It's not about you, man. This is, this is God's church. This is his work. This is his kingdom. These are his people, it's not on you, man. So relax. Trust in Christ. Go home and love your wife. Love your kids. And lay your head on your pillow at night and sleep like a baby. God is still on his throne. He is still sovereign. And he doesn't need your help for anything. Like, I need to hear that. You need to hear that. We need to remind, be reminded that the weight of the world is not on our shoulders. And David needed to be reminded of that as well. So here's the first truth that I want to highlight for you. This is simple. Listen, it's so simple, but it is crucial for our happiness in life. Point number one is this. God is the hero, 
so take off the cape and rest. He's the hero. Stop trying to be the hero. So many of us have this like messianic complex, like it's all on us for our kids' future, or our future, our retirement, our jobs, or who we're going to marry, or whatever it is. You're not the hero. God is. Rest in him. Now, does that mean that when we put our trust in Christ, when we begin to follow him, that we should become like the most useless, lazy people on the planet? Like, man, Jesus did it all for me, so... I guess I just get to lay on the couch and binge on Netflix and wait for Jesus to come back, right? Is that how it works? Some of you are like, I feel like this is a trap question. (laughs) You would be right. (laughs) It's all about motive. It's all about motive, isn't it? Look Look at the words of the Apostle Paul as he writes to a church in a city called Corinth. This will be on the screens for you. The Apostle Paul said, For the love of Christ, the love of Christ controls, your translation may say compels, I actually like that better. The love of Christ compels us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised." We absolutely are to give our lives away in the cause of Jesus' great kingdom, but the motivation is never guilt, it's never duty, it's never repaying God. The motivation, according to Paul, is love. So it's not, it's not one of these things like, oh, crud, man, I, got, I guess I got to pay God back the whole Jesus died on the cross blood thing for me, so I guess I better get up and go to church today. Crud, man, I guess I better read my Bible today. I better pay my tithe this month. I'm like, well, whatever it is, right? Wrong motivation. Unbiblical thinking. Instead, the motivation should be this. Jesus, I love you. Like, I could never repay you for what you've done for me. But because you loved me first and allowed me to love you back, I'm gonna give you my life out of an overflow of my love for you because you've loved me. Do you see the difference there? It's not duty, it's, it's love that drives us. Love fuels the mission. So like, here, here's a pretty good illustration, I think. If you just say, that you noticed uh, every time you bumped into me like out in the community somewhere. So let's say last week you ran into me at a restaurant and then this week we bump into each other like a coffee shop and then next week we run into each other like hiking on the, on the Blue Ridge out somewhere. And you were to say to me, Chris, it's like every time I see you, every time I bump into you, you're always with your wife, Cheryl. And like suppose that I answered you and said, yeah, well, like she's my wife. Like, it's sort of my husbandly duty to spend time with her. And if I don't, she might suffocate me when I sleep at night. So he was like, just do what you got to do, bro. It's just one of those things. Now, like, that would be a, like a lot different than if I were to respond and say, yeah, I'm always with Cheryl. She's my best friend. Like, she's the love of my life. Like, there's nobody that I would rather spend time with than her, which for the record is true. Is this being recorded? All right. All right, all right. Now that's a lot different answer, isn't it? Why is that so different? Because it's about motivation. 
It's love-driven. It's not guilt-driven or duty-driven. It's the same way in our relationship with God. We are to live a radically committed life to God and his kingdom, but it's love that drives us. And so that's the second point in the text this morning. Love drives kingdom work. We are to work in the kingdom, and our lives should most definitely match our beliefs. No question about that, but it is love. It is love that drives. Love is the motivation. One more thing that I need you to see here before we uh, move on in the narrative. Notice this. God's no to David, like the no, like, hey, no, you can't build me that awesome temple church thing that you want to build. His no to David led to a far greater yes, far greater blessings. And God says, no, David, you're not going to build me a house. How about this? I'm going to build you a dynasty. I'm going to build you a kingdom that will last forever. And see, a lot, of a, a lot of us get discouraged, right, when God says no or when God tells us to wait. But listen, I, I'm convinced if we could see even just like a tiny fraction of what God is doing in and around us in our lives, we would never be disappointed and we would never question God like ever again in our lives. As one pastor uh, put it, and I love this, he said, God is doing 10,000 things in your life right now, and you might be aware of like three of them. So here, here's, here's the third truth uh, this morning. Here's number three. God's no leads to a far greater yes. Believer, trust your heavenly Father. He is good. He is good. He is, he is always good. Hey, single person in the room this morning, when God tells you no about that person that you really wanted to date or that person that you thought you were going to marry, remind yourself of this truth. God's no leads to a far greater yes. Hey, person in a miserable job, when you don't get that dream job that you applied for, be reminded of this truth. Be encouraged, believer. The greater yes is oftentimes hiding behind the no. All right, here's the really cool part in verse 12. When you're talking, this is God talking to David here. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, in other words, David, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, who, who's God talking about here? Who's the he here? Yeah, we, we know that this is David's son, Solomon, because Solomon would actually go on to, to build the temple, okay? Verse 14, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision Nathan spoke to David. Now this is a prophecy, as we just noted, that in part is fulfilled by David's son Solomon because he would go on to build the temple. But is it just Solomon whom God is referencing here? There's a problem here if that's the case. You know why? Because Solomon failed. 
Solomon died. Solomon's kingdom eventually crumbled. For this prophecy to be fulfilled, a forever kingdom had to be established. Someone greater than Solomon has to show up at some point in time in history for this prophecy to be fulfilled. This is what Bible scholars call a double reference prophecy or a dual meaning prophecy, which are common, by the way, throughout the Old Testament. That simply means that some prophecies have an immediate promise that is realized. In this case, Solomon building the temple. But they point through the initial promise to a future, a greater fulfillment of that promise. So who's going to be the ultimate fulfillment of this promise? Right. Who's, who's going to come from David's family line to set up a forever kingdom? There's only one person in history that fulfills that promise, and that's Jesus Christ. Listen to the words of Jesus himself in Matthew's gospel. This will be on the screens for you. Jesus said, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, pointing at himself, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus goes, listen, someone greater, that someone greater than Solomon that you've been waiting on, I'm here. I am the greater Solomon. I am the greater David. My kingdom will have no end. Jesus is the promised one. And so listen, this is, this is incredible. David is getting a glimpse in 2 Samuel chapter 7 of the gospel almost a thousand years before the birth of Christ. How amazing is that? The Bible just blows my mind. I love it. Now, what, what's David's response to this good news? What's David's response essentially to the gospel here? What's his response to the, the truth that, you know what, it's not, about, it's not about me. It's not about how much I work for God. What's his response to the fact that God is gonna do all the work by establishing a forever kingdom and sending a forever king from his lineage. Look at David's response to the gospel, verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. Now pause there. Sometimes, friend, we just need to sit in awe of a great God. And that is exactly what David is doing here. He gets a glimpse of the gospel, of the coming forever king, of the coming Messiah, and all he can do is sit down in awe of God. And he said, who am I? Who am I, O Lord, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this is a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. David, here's this good news that it's not about him. It's not about him working for God. It's about a forever kingdom that God is building and a coming forever king. And David's response to the gospel is, who am I that you would love me this way? His response is humility. God, why would you love me like that? Why would you accept me, not based on my performance, but simply based on your goodness towards me? I came across a, a quote that I loved uh, this week, so I thought I'd share it with you from 
a man named Jared Wilson. He's a, a writer and, and a pastor and a seminary professor. Uh, and Wilson writes this. Try harder. Do more. Be better. You'd think Christians would tire of this exhausting message, but it keeps selling. It pets our pride just right. The gospel announces freedom through humility for those who want off the performance treadmill. Friend, are you tired? Are you tired of trying to perform? Are you exhausted from trying to be good enough with your checklist faith? Do you need to just rest in God's goodness, just bask in his gospel this morning. If that's you, listen, believe in this good news. Believe in this forever king. He will give you rest. He has performed on your behalf. He lived the perfect life that you should have lived, but you couldn't live. And he died to pay the penalty of your sin on your behalf, the, the sin, that, the, the punishment that you deserved, right? So that you can live in freedom and rest in him that's good news, guys. This is the best news, and David is getting a glimpse of this thousand years before Jesus is even born. David continues on in his prayer, verse 21. He says this, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness. We're gonna see this kind of theme throughout David's prayer here. You have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. God wants David to to know him, to know his greatness, to, to bask in that glory, right? Verse 22, therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you and there is no God beside you according to all we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house. And do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified or made great, God, forever. Saying the Lord of hosts is God over Israel and the house of your servant David will be established before you. Do you see what David is doing in his prayer? He is pointing to God's greatness again and again and again, and God's greatness leads him to worship. It leads David to this place of humility and loving God back for his greatness and for what he's done and will do uh, for David. David even says, hey, God has brought about all this greatness so that he would know it. God wants David to, to sit in awe of his greatness. And God wants us to, to know his greatness, to know him, to see the works of his hands in our lives and to marvel. Why? Why does God care so much about us living in light of his greatness? Here's why. This is point number four. This is the last one. It's this. Listen, God's greatness satisfies the human heart. It's God's greatness that satisfies the human heart. Now see, some of you, if I were a betting man, which, which I'm not, but if I were, I would wager a ton of money that some of you in this room right now are in search for satisfaction in your life 
and you can't find it primarily because you think that your satisfaction is going to be found in your greatness. And so you spend the majority of your time, you spend the majority of your mental energy, you spend the majority of your resources focused on you. And here's the irony of like the, the self-help kind of craze in our culture, the American culture. Like you can go to any bookstore or Amazon or wherever and just about two out of every three books, just about, is a self-help book. Right, so five ways to be more confident, three ways to become a great leader, seven steps to having a great sex life, three steps to becoming powerful in business, right? This self-help craze is a multi-billion dollar industry in our culture, and here's the irony of the self-help craze. You ready for this? It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Now, it sells because it appeals to our brokenness, but it doesn't work. That's why they keep writing new books, because the old ones didn't work, right? You tried the five steps to like whatever, and you're still broken inside. You still can't find peace, and you're still not satisfied in life. You want to know why? It's because your happiness is not tied up in your greatness. You can become a great leader, you can make lots of money, you can work out and get six-pack abs like I have, you can have, why y'all laughing? That's rude. You can have a great romantic life. You can be successful in the business world. And listen to me, you will still be bankrupt on the inside. Your happiness is not, will never be tied up in your greatness. Your happiness and your satisfaction is tied up in God's greatness and in knowing him. And you can almost see like the, this light bulb moment for King David here. Like he's, he's getting it. He's understanding that salvation is a gift. It's not something to be earned or repaid. Like and we struggle with this, don't we? As, as human beings because we have kind of like this innate desire to earn and to work for and to, to pay back, to, to repay. It's just like wired into us, especially for those of us who are here as as Americans, man, we come from the John Wayne, pull yourself up by your bootstraps culture, man. So it's hard for us. I remember just a few weeks ago, I had a friend, I had a buddy come to me and he said, hey man, Chris, I want to give you, I want to do this, this thing for you just as a gift. And um, it was very kind, it was very generous. Um, but I confess to you that my first response upon my friend offering me this gift, this grace, was my response to him was, yeah, I'll, I'll receive this if you let me do this for you. Now, where does that come from? Self, pride. Your pastor is a sinner. He needs Jesus every single day of his life because you know what? That's not the way the gospel works. The gospel is not 90% God and 10% you. So I kind of want to close with this, this uh, principle. We're going to put this on the screens for you. Here it is. The gospel is 100% God and 0% me. In fact, I want us to say that together on the count of three, okay? One, two, three. The gospel is 100% God, 0% me. And God is teaching David that, and David is basking in the glory of this truth. 
Right? This is a light bulb moment for David. And somebody here this morning needs that exact light bulb moment in their lives. It's not about you. It's not about your greatness. You say, Chris, that's rude. No, that's freedom. Your happiness is tangled up in knowing God and his greatness. And so here, here's, what, here's what's, what will happen. Like when this light bulb moment happens for you and it, that light bulb switches on for you in your life, here's what's gonna happen. You're gonna begin to live for God. You're, you're gonna begin working in his kingdom, not, listen, not from a place of trying to earn or repay anything, but from a place of overflow of your love for him. See, it's all love. It's all, it's all gratitude. Do you see the difference there? But it's not that we ever become like lazy spiritually. It's that our motivation for work in God's kingdom, our, our fuel to live for Jesus is love. So the questions for us change from questions like, Man, how often do I really have to go to church for God to love me? Like, do I need to go every week? Can I just go like once a month? Christmas and Easter, is that good enough? Like, how much do I have to give? Like, do I have to tithe? Do I have to give 10%? Can I get away with 5%? Can I get away with just like throwing a 20 in the plate every now and then? How often do I have to pray? Can I just pray on Sundays? Can I get away with maybe just praying like twice a week maybe with my kids or something like that? Wrong questions. You're still trying to earn it. See, when we, when we get the gospel, those types of questions shift to, like, how often do I get to gather to worship with the saints? Like, what can I sacrifice so that I can invest generously and extravagantly into the advancement of God's kingdom? Like, I can't wait to pray today. Like, I can't wait to get away on my lunch break or whatever and just spend a few minutes talking to God. It becomes joy, not duty. Look, when I have a, a date night scheduled with my wife, that day when I'm at work, I promise you, I'm, I'm not thinking, like, how little can I get away with and still have her love me? Like, that's, not, that's never my thought. Like, I wonder if I could pull off a McDonald's date. Like eight bucks out the door, save some, save, save some money. Will she still love me? No, that, that's, never, that's never the question, right? No, because it's not duty. I'm thinking, as I'm thinking about our date then, I'm thinking, where can I take her that she'll love? Like, what, what can I sacrifice to make it special for her? See, it's, it's love-driven, and the questions that you're asking spiritually, even in the quietness of your own mind and heart, those questions are a great barometer for how you view God and where you're at in your relationship with him right now. Are you asking duty questions? Are you asking checklist questions? Or are you asking questions that are birthed from a place of joy and love in relationship with your creator? Because listen to me, when you get the gospel, as David got it right here in 2 Samuel chapter 7, when you finally get it, when you finally understand it, we give more of our lives, not less. Give more of our lives, more of our time, more of our talent, more of our resources. But our motivation is in the right place as we're basking in the greatness of our God. And listen to me, that makes all the difference. As we close, I want to just invite you to bow your heads with me for a moment. And here, here's, here's the deal. 
almost everything in your life, and, and listen, I, I'm speaking to myself when I say this, so I'm not, hear me, I'm not placing myself in an ivory tower, I'm not casting stones at anybody, but I just want you to, I want you to understand this. Almost everything you think is important in your life right now, listen, will not matter in the end. It won't matter in the end, not one single bit. All the stuff you're worried about right now, your money's not gonna last. Your job's not gonna last. Your stuff's not gonna last. The only thing that will last forever is God's kingdom. So I just wanna encourage you, if you're here and you don't know this great God that that David was getting to know 3,000 years ago, if you're here and you're not yet a disciple of Jesus, I want you to know that he invites you right now, today, to take your place in his forever kingdom. To live a life of freedom and satisfaction in him and his greatness that, listen, you will find nowhere else in the world apart from him. The beginning of the greatest journey of your life can start today. It can start today. It can start right now. Just surrender your life to him. Wave the white flag of surrender and just pray in your own words, God, I'm tired of trying to do it myself. Try, tired of trying to be good enough and perform and achieve. I want to surrender my life. I want to follow Jesus. I want his life, his righteousness in my place. So right now, the best way I know how, God, I'm just giving you my life. I'm surrendering to you, and I want to start this journey with you today. And if you're here, and you're in the room, and you're a believer this morning, you're a follower of Jesus, let me just ask you this question. Are you on the treadmill of trying to earn God's approval? Are you on the treadmill of trying to, trying to get his love, earn his love, pay him back? And if you are, are you tired yet? Aren't you exhausted? Listen, Jesus has done it all for you. He didn't do 99%. He's asking you to do 1%. He did 100%. So believer, learn to trust in him. Learn to rest in him. Learn to live from the overflow of your love for him as you bask in his greatness, just like David did so many years ago. Let me pray for us and then we'll sing. God, as David prayed so many years ago, you, our confession is you are great. You are great, God. There is, there is none like you. There is no God beside you. God, you are our satisfaction and our joy. So help us, Father, just to get off the performance treadmill and the approval treadmill and trust in the forever King the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, God. Help us rest in him. Help us to live in his freedom. And it's in the name of that king, the forever king we pray, the name of Jesus. Amen. Church, let's stand and sing.